I'm reading this morning from Genesis chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Well, good morning. Frederick Buchner, Christian author, writes this. It is a peculiarly 20th century story and is almost too awful to tell, about a boy of 12 or 13 who, in a fit of crazy anger and depression, got hold of a gun somewhere and fired it at his father, who died not right away but soon afterward. When the authorities asked the boy why he had done it, he said that it was because he could not stand his father, because his father demanded too much of him, because he hated his father. And then later on, after he'd been placed in a house of detention, a guard was walking down the corridor late one night when he heard sounds from the boy's room, and he stopped to listen. The words he heard the boy sobbing out in the dark were, I want my father. I want my father. That story reflects, I think, a struggle for all of us to some degree, and that is, We long for our Father's love, but there's a lot of pain associated in our relationships with our fathers as well. Dick Innes writes this, Ask a hundred men how many felt close to and affirmed by their father, and you will see three or four hands raised. Herein lies the secret of so much of our relational and emotional distress and the answer to our recovery The father wound that injured our masculine soul is because we never felt loved by our fathers. But that's not just something that men struggle with. The Christian psychologist H. Norman Wright, who wrote a book called Healing for the Father Wound for Women, writes this, 
The most important male relationship that women have is with their fathers because it is the first male relationship and it sets her up in terms of what to expect from men in her life. The validation of a father's love and acceptance is critical so that she is able to really gain an acceptance of herself and have a positive image of what a man is like. If she doesn't have that, then it's like going through life with that hole or that vacuum. Women try many different ways to get that filled to validate themselves, unfortunately. It also really affects their perception of God, especially when you say, God's our Heavenly Father. But their image of a father is not good. So they feel, well, that's not really very good, so I'm not even sure I want that. You see, our fathers are significant people in our lives, all of us. And all our fathers have failed us to varying degrees, some more than others. They've all left us in some degree with wounds, with difficulty, unfulfilled longings in our lives. So the question for every one of us this morning I want you to be thinking about as we study together is, how have I responded to that father wound? And secondly, how can I be healed of that father wound in a way that allows me to become all that God created me to be. So I'm not held back from what he has for me. In our passage today, Genesis 37, it reveals that father wound in a really vivid way in the lives of Jacob's sons. And it helps us to understand our responses to it as we look at how they responded to it. So as we go through this well-known story of Joseph and his brothers, I want you to think about your own relationship with your father and perhaps other significant other family members in your life. And then we'll take some time at the end to think about, okay, how can we truly be healed of that father wound that we all carry? So let me begin with prayer and then let's look together in this passage of Scripture. Heavenly Father, We thank you that we can call you Heavenly Father. We ask you this morning to give us courage to think about our own lives and our own woundedness so that we might find healing in your presence. Open our minds and our hearts to what you have for us this morning. Teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Valerie read, this passage begins with this simple statement. Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. But if you take a moment just to stop there and say, where did Jacob live? He lived in the land where his father sojourned. It reminds us to think briefly about Jacob's relationship with his father. Do you remember what it was like? (laughs) Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, but Isaac favored Esau, not Jacob. And Jacob, as far as we know, never got his father's love. So we're reminded right from the start the favoritism that his own father had for his brother Esau. He's living at home, but without the father who has now died, the one who gave him a father wound that unfortunately Jacob carried over. To his own children. 
And then in verse 2, we find out about Joseph. We discover him. When 17 years of age, he was pastoring the flock with his brothers when he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. 17 years old. Joseph is the 11th of 12 sons. So he's quite a ways down. But the first thing we find out about him is what? He's a tattletale. <laughs> he goes out with his older brothers, and I'm not sure, but it, there's certainly a hint here that the ones he's tattling on are, are the sons of the handmaidens, not of Rachel and Leah. He's the son of Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. And so he looks down on his other brothers. So when he gets the chance, they've done something probably a little bit wrong. He tattletales. And it says he gives an evil report. It wasn't just that he pointed out what they'd done wrong. He really spun it to make them look bad. Now, why would Joseph do that? Let's just take a minute and think about that. Why do any of us do that? Well, to make ourselves look good, right? He wanted to look good in his father's eyes. Dad, look at how bad these guys are. <laughs> and I saw it. <laughs> Not that any of us would ever be tattletales or make others look bad so that we would look good, right? Hmm. Then in verse 3, we find out the real problem here. Israel, another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a very colored tunic, is my translation. We find out here that Jacob didn't just love Joseph. He loved him more than all his brothers, 11 or 10 of whom are older, right? And the youngest, Benjamin, I think, Jacob was kind of distant from him a little bit because his wife Rachel had died in childbirth and so he was super protective. But the one he favored, the one he loved, was Joseph. And he sets him apart by giving him a special robe. Now my translation says very colored in the Hebrew. You can't really tell. In the Hebrew it just means some kind of special robe that set him apart from his brothers, so that every time they looked at him, they knew dad loves him more than us. In fact, the robe signifies that jo Jacob is saying, Joseph is the one I favor. Joseph is the one I'm putting my authority on. Joseph is the one that I love more than anybody else. As far as the brothers are concerned, it's essentially like painting a big target on Joseph's back. Verse 4, we find out how the brothers respond. Not real happy about it. They saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him with peace. Literally, that's what it means. They could not speak to him. They couldn't say a nice thing to him, period. Because they were so angry, they hated his guts. Now think with me for a minute, why were they so angry? Why did they hate him so much? Because they had the, he had the love of the Father that they wanted, that they longed for. They wanted their Father to treat them special, to choose them. 
And he's the little brat, the tattletale. And yet Father loves him and not us. And they are furious. Now, for many of you out there, you may be able to kind of justify the fact your father didn't love you very well by saying, well, my dad had his own wounds, my dad had his own pain, and therefore, you know, he just was incapable of loving well. And sometimes that can ease the pain a bit, but what we see with them is that the father was capable of loving well. He just didn't choose them. He chose He chose Joseph. And that hurts even worse, doesn't it? Some of you experience that. Favoritism in your own families. Your father communicating to you, you are not as valuable to me as someone else. It gets worse. (laughs) So Joseph has a dream. They're out gathering sheaves, and his sheep stands up tall, and all the others bow down to his. But this little brat doesn't keep it to himself. (laughs) He goes to them, hey, hey guys, guess what I dreamed (laughs) as he's wearing his robe. I dreamt that all you guys bowed down to me, (laughs) all you older brothers. Well, it says they hated him even more. Imagine that. (laughs) Uh, He wasn't very smart, was he? (laughs) Then it even gets worse. He has another dream. And in this dream, it's clear that not only do they bow down, but even mom and dad bow down to him. This infuriates them even more. So what do we see up to this point? We see an arrogant, unlikable Joseph flaunting the favoritism he has from his father. And we see his brothers who are enraged. Joseph, longing for his father's love, has it, so he flaunts it in everybody's face, and everybody else is so thirsty for Jacob's love, and they are enraged because they don't have it. Because they want to be loved by Dad too. But they're not. Every one of us longed or longs to be loved by our fathers, and this affects us deeply. Christian writer Gordon Dalby wrote this, No pain strikes more deeply into a man's heart than being abandoned emotionally and or physically by dad. I respectfully leave it to women to articulate what the father wound and its curse means to a daughter. But it's no mere theological or psychological construct. It's a crippling reality for men, which for starters renders a man inadequate with women, distrusting of other men, nearsighted in his view of God, and therefore divorced from his destiny. If you could have uh, watched me in high school and after that, you would have seen that I was very obsessive about two things. Success in school and success in sports. I was working so hard to try to succeed in those two things. Now, why? Why? It's because it was very clear to me that those were the two things that my father valued above everything else. 
So I did everything I could to try to get his approval. I worked hard. Unfortunately, it didn't really work (laughs) very well. I thought if I could just do well enough, maybe he'll love me like I want to be loved. A man just this week here at Cole told me this. My father only said that he was proud of me once in my life. And that was right before he died. Some of you can relate to that. Some of you never heard those words. Some of you heard those words, but they didn't ring true. All of us carry some kind of father wound, male or female, whoever we are. So how do we respond to that woundedness, that pain, that loss? Well, as we go on in the story and we look at the brothers, we see two responses that are common, I think, to all of us. Rage, anger, and two, work. Anger and work. Working hard to try to earn our Father's love. Maybe you've emphasized one or the other, but they're common to all of us. As the story goes on, in chapter 37, there's this anger, there's this tension in the family. Verse 12 through 17, I won't take time to read it, but just let me tell you what happens The brothers, all except Joseph, go off and they are herding the sheep up in Shechem, about 60 miles away. Now, you remember Shechem? Shechem's where a couple chapters back, the brothers had slaughtered the whole town. Their sister Dinah had been raped. They decided to take justice in their own hands. They killed the whole town, everybody in the town. And that's where they go back to herd the sheep, which is a curious thing. I'm not sure why. Maybe they felt like Hey, that's a place of triumph. We felt powerful there. Let's go back there. But Jacob finds out they're there, and he's concerned for them because the surrounding peoples obviously didn't like what happened. He's concerned for their safety, so he sends Joseph off to find them. So he takes off. He goes. He's trying to find them. He gets to Shechem. They're not there. But he runs into a man who's unnamed, who says, oh, your brothers have gone on to Dotham another 13 miles, and he goes on there to find them. That's where we pick up the story in verse 18. When they saw him, the brothers saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him and to put him to death. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer, and literally it's this Lord of dreams. He thinks he's... The Lord, well, he's Lord of dreams and nothing else. Like we're going to bow down to him ever. (laughs) Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say, a wild beast devoured him. Then let's see what will become of his dreams. So they decide, let's kill him. Let's get rid of him. Let's destroy him. And as we find out as the story goes on, Joseph is wearing the robe. He's gone this long journey, but, you know, he's not going to take it off. He's going to find his brothers. His dad's not there to protect him, but he's foolish enough, arrogant enough, I guess, to show up wearing the robe. Hi, guys. Hi, brothers. Here I am. (laughs) And they say, let's just get rid of him. Let's kill him. Now, again, why do they want to get rid of him? We often think that 
If there's a barrier to our Father's love, maybe if we get rid of that barrier, maybe then He'll love us. Maybe He'll love me. Finally, maybe I'll get what I want. So He foolishly wears the robe. They're thinking, maybe if He's not around so Dad can love, can't love Him, maybe He'll love us now. That's what jealousy thinks. It's murderous. It wants to destroy what's getting in the way of what my soul longs for. And the story goes on. Reuben, verse 22, said to them, Don't kill him. Throw him into this pit that's in the wilderness, but don't lay hands on him that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. We'll come back to that verse in a moment. So it came about when Joseph reached his brother's that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, ripped it off him. And they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Now those cisterns in those days, they were used to collect and store water in a desert country. So they have ways of collecting the runoff. And then there were big pits in the ground that had a narrow opening, and then they were bigger underneath so they could hold lots of water and keep it cool and keep it from evaporating. They threw him in there. It was dry, but there's no way out. You can't climb out of those things. They're big and deep. He was trapped. Then they sat down to eat a meal. That's kind of ironic. They sit down to have a feast, to eat a meal next to him as they hear his cries in the cistern, and they're eating a meal. Very ironic that the next meal they eat in Joseph's presence is in Egypt when he is second to Pharaoh and he's overseeing them and they're terrified of him. <laughs> God's got a sense of humor, doesn't he? <laughs> as, the, as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what poignant is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus, they brought Joseph into Egypt. So they want to kill him. They decide let's throw him in the pit and let him die instead of shedding his blood so we don't have that. But then Judah very coldly says, we're not going to make any money if he just starves to death here, but we could sell him to these guys as a slave and let's, we could make some bucks out of this. So he suggests they sell him. And then Reuben is very upset, verse 29 and 30. Now Reuben returned to the pit. He apparently missed the meal. Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy's not there. As for me, where am I to go? Now think again for a moment with me. Why is Reuben so upset? Remember earlier he would said, Let's not kill him. Let's put him in the pit so that he could come back and rescue him and restore him to his father. And now he says, Where am I to go since I can't do that? I can't go home. Remember, Reuben is the firstborn. Reuben's the oldest, but two chapters ago we saw where he made a terrible mistake. He slept with his father's 
concubine handmaiden Bilhah. It was a way of him arrogantly saying, I want to take over this family. You're too weak, Dad. I want to be the boss. And it says Jacob knew about it. Now he's desperate for his father's love and he thinks, well, Dad favors Joseph. Maybe if I rescue him and bring him to Dad, then maybe Dad will love me. But now he's lost. He isn't even sure he can go home because he can't rescue him. Like many of us, Reuben is working hard to earn his father's love somehow, to try to get it back. Well, one of, I think, one of the most emotionally powerful passages in the scriptures in this next few verses. Think about this. Listen to it. So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood, and they sent the varicolored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it's your son's tunic or not. Now, obviously, they know he's alive. They slaughter a goat, put blood on it, and say, Gee, Dad, whose is this? Another bit of irony in this passage. Remember what Jacob did earlier to his own father? Slaughtered a goat, wore the skins, made a meal, deceived his own father by killing a goat. Now his sons deceive him by killing a goat. How ironic. He examined it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. They didn't even have to say it. They let him come to his own conclusion. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. The time is mourning and so is over. Then in verse 35, then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Think of what those sons were going through. They knew they had caused their father's grief. They knew that they had deceived him. And they are there (laughs) pretending, hypocritically trying to comfort him, but hoping all along, when my dad's done mourning Joseph, then maybe he'll love me. And instead, what do they find? That even in death, Jacob loves Joseph more than them. It didn't work. None of it worked. And so they're left with an even deeper loss, watching their father go down in weeping and mourning, and they don't have their father's love. All it does is reinforce how he loves Joseph more than them. So as we talk through this passage, think about it. There's two responses these brothers have had to their father wound that they've experienced. Rage, anger, get rid of what's in the way, and working hard, somehow can we earn back our Father's love? But neither is really satisfying, and most of us have tried both to some extent. John Steinbeck, the wonderful American writer, wrote in his book, East of Eden, these words. He said, The greatest terror a child can have is that he is not loved, and rejection is the hell he fears. I think everyone 
everyone in the world to a large or small extent has felt rejection. And with rejection comes anger. And with anger, some kind of crime and revenge for the rejection. And with the crime, guilt. And there is the story of mankind. Pretty insightful words. In his book, Wild at Heart, John Eldritch says this, Some fathers give a wound merely by their silence. They are present yet absent to their sons. The silence is deafening. I remember as a boy wanting my father to die and feeling immense guilt for having such a desire. Rage and working. So how then do we get our hearts filled up? How do we get healed? How do we get restored? Because all of us carry this father wound, male, female, whoever we are, to some degree. How do we find healing? Before we answer that question, I just want to step back and just highlight a couple things from this passage that I think we need to remember and, and uh, that I think are very significant. Number one, we see in this passage a very dysfunctional family, and it highlights for us that every family is dysfunctional. There are no together families. There are perhaps are varying degrees of dysfunction, but every family is dysfunctional, is messy, has issues. It's part of being in a fallen world. You cannot avoid it. It's better to face it. Secondly, as this passage highlights for us, behind the scenes, God is still at work. Now, God's name is not mentioned once in this whole chapter. And yet, we see his hand involved working all through the passage. And and we could highlight all kinds of ways, but let me just mention several. God is the one who gave Joseph his dreams. And they were true dreams. They were going to come true eventually. God gives Joseph those dreams. God sent the man to guide Joseph to his brothers. It was all part of God's bigger plan to redeem his people. God worked through Reuben's wanting to please his dad and Judah's wanting to make some money greedily to save Joseph's life. God worked even through their dysfunction and their struggle and their perversion and their sin and their selfishness. God knew that was going to happen and he worked through it in the midst of it. God sent the caravan of Ishmaelites by at just the right time. God had him be sold, Joseph sold, to Potiphar's, the last verse in the chapter says, to Potiphar's house, this significant place. God had a plan in that. God, out of love for Jacob, removed from him his idol, his son Joseph. Because he had wanted to draw Jacob closer to himself. Those are just some of the ways God's hand is working through all this. And so I want to encourage you that no matter how messed up your family may be or have been, God is still at work accomplishing his purposes on your behalf. And in fact, the father wound that you experience 
is not a hindrance to God's plan. It may feel like it, but it is not. In fact, it's part of God's plan. Not that he caused it, but he wants to use it to fulfill his plan for your life. He takes your wounds into account to further his kingdom. So how do we fill the longing for our Father's love? I just want to mention three things. Number one, I think it's important that we begin by realizing that our earthly parents can never fill the longings of our heart. We just need to realize that. They were never intended to. Our earthly parents were never meant to fill the longings of our hearts. Whether they were great failures or pretty good at loving us, all they're really meant to be is signposts pointing us to our Heavenly Father, pointing us to what we were created to find our fulfillment and our love in, to Him. That's what they're meant to be. So if your father didn't, was terrible and abusive, that's an awful thing. But it awakens in you, God's design is, that that would awaken in you a sense of, I know what I long for. It's not here. Where is it? It's in my heavenly Father to turn to Him and find it in Him. And if your parents were pretty good at loving you, that's meant to be something that points you to even greater fulfillment in your heavenly Father. When we put our hope in our earthly parents, it's kind of like, you know, me having a picture of Jeannie, my wife, and saying, man, this picture is awesome. (laughs) I just want to hang out with this picture all the time. (laughs) I love this picture. Wait, that's just a representation of her. She's so much greater than the picture. And your earthly parents are just a representation, maybe poor, maybe good, I don't know, but they're just a representation of your heavenly Father who is far greater. So stop hanging on to the picture. Secondly, to find our fulfillment in Him, realize that Jesus came to restore our relationship with our heavenly Father. He came so that we could find the fulfillment in the Father who loves us. He died on that cross for us. He entered Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, headed for death on the cross so that we could be restored to the one who died for us. So that what happens when you put your faith in Jesus is Jesus stripped himself of his royal robes. He took on our sin. So that whenever you put your faith in him, what happens is the father looks at you and clothes you with his robe and says, you're my favorite. Now, how God can have millions of favorites, I don't know, but he does. When you put your faith in Christ, you're covered by his blood. Jesus takes on your sin and rejection. The Bible says that he became sin for you and me. He took on your sin and rejection and we get clothed in his robes of favoritism. So realize that's why Jesus came. 
And then finally, let the Spirit lead you to a deeper relationship with your Heavenly Father. Let me just read. We don't have time to explore these verses in depth, but I think they're wonderful verses in Romans chapter 8, verse 15 through 17. Where Paul writes, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father! The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may be glorified with Him. The Spirit, it says, testifies in our hearts and says, the Father loves you, the Father loves you, so let the Spirit minister to you and enter into the joy of your Father's love. Let the Spirit encourage you. It doesn't mean the Father's going to make everything easy. It says we find glory when we suffer with Christ in order that we may be glorified with Him. He doesn't make it easy, but He walks with us and loves us through it. So we want to celebrate that now. We're going to take communion together to celebrate our Father's love and acceptance, the favored status we have with Him. That's what grace is. So let me pray, and then we will take communion together. Lord, thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for us. So that all that pain and rejection and woundedness that we've carried all our lives, you carried for us on that cross so that we could experience the depth of the love of your Heavenly Father that you have experienced from the beginning of eternity. And you wanted to share that with us, so you gave up your life so we could be forgiven and enter into the joy of our Father. We thank you, and we celebrate that now. In Jesus' name, amen.